Ah, thank you, choir. Thank you, band. God is able, amen? I love those songs. Get me ready to preach. So get you ready to hear God's Word again this morning? You know, we're going to turn to the book of Jonah. In fact, you can turn there. Uh, find Jonah. It's wedged in there at the end of the Old Testament. I'll give you some time to find it. It's only four chapters long. We were going to end our series on the prophets last week with Ezekiel, but uh, frankly, I was having so much fun with the prophets, and some of you at least came back to me and said, we really like our time in the prophets, so we're going to go two more weeks. Yeah, go ahead. Give it up. Amen. <laughs> two more weeks. Uh, it'll bring us to Palm Sunday. So even though it's only four chapters long, we're going to uh, spend two weeks on Jonah. Um, this first week, uh, it's a little bit of a different sermon. I'm going to do more teaching than preaching. Next week will be more preaching than teaching. So it's really one sermon spread over two weeks, so you have to come back. Okay, and it's really brilliant because out of one sermon, I get two offertories. So uh, that, that works. So, <laughs> whoa, boo. So, so uh, I hope you can come back next week for Jonah. This morning, and um, uh, I'm a little nervous about the sermon this morning. It's not one that I would preach first time um, to any body of believers. Um, uh, but I feel like uh, you and I uh, have gotten to know each other, most of us, over the last few years. If you're visiting first time today, but, hi, my, my name's Todd, and, and this will be your first sermon or message that you hear uh, through me and, and from me, and uh, please feel free to come up after and uh, talk to me about anything but, um, uh, that you like, but uh, I want to take you, <laughs> did I say something funny? I forgot, what, I don't know what I said. So please come talk to me, and don't leave thinking, man, that was the strangest sermon I've ever heard in my life, because I'm going to take you someplace that's um, a little bit uneasy, a little bit uncomfortable for some, including me. And, um, but I think there's merit in doing it, and uh, we'll see as we go along whether you agree. So I want to set up um, next week's message a little bit by what we're doing this morning, but this morning's message also serves an important purpose, I feel, uh, in and among the body of Christ, and how we approach and handle this amazing Word of God that God gives us, this Word that is completely true and faithful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, you know, I couldn't stop laughing. I have to mention this up front before we dive in. You can tell I'm stalling before I get to the controversial message. Um, yeah, Jan and, and, and Lori, you know, ladies spring brunch. Uh, did you catch what the theme was on the announcements? The theme is faith lift. <laughs> so if you want to go to the spring brunch, you can lift and go hear someone talk about a faith lift. No, I think it's faith lift. Does it sound like that you're lisping? Okay, maybe it's just funny to me. I don't know. Get your tickets outside beginning today, right, Lori? Or, or Jan? I'm looking at Jan, and I'm calling out to Lori. I didn't see Lori this morning. She's usually over here. Where's Norman, Lori? Oh, you moved. That's a bold move. You've crossed the aisle. You have to tell me. You know, all right. So, hey, get your tickets today. You won't be disappointed. Young and old, uh, the spring brunch is always a huge hit. Okay, your Bibles are open to the book of Jonah. Um, let's start uh, with something that uh, uh, everyone can agree on when it comes to the book of Jonah. What do we know about Jonah? 
Well, we're going to have to back up our timeline again, our historical timeline, because I'm tanking on Jonah, sort of out of order. I thought it'd be done by now, but now we're back into Jonah. So we've got to back up to that time when there still was a northern and southern kingdom of Israel, before Assyria came in <clears throat> and wiped out the north. Jonah was one of the several prophets whose ministry occurred during the reign of King Jeroboam II of the northern kingdom. And so Jonah was in there sometime between 793 and 753, as you can see on the screens. Two other prophets that we've already covered that you know of, Amos and Hosea, they're also thrown in there. So combine Jonah in there too as one of those prophets to the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam II. What else do we know about Jonah? We know his hometown was Gath-Hafer. Uh, no real biblical import uh, from that village that we know of, but we do know it was in the north, very near to Nazareth. We also know his father's name was Amittai. Say Amittai. And when you say Amittai, you say and use the Hebrew word for truth. And that's really cool if you're a prophet that your dad's name is Truth. Because if you, some of you know, in Bible times there weren't last names yet. And you'd introduce yourself. If we were in Bible times, I'd come and I'd say, Hello, my name's Todd, son of Arlen. Because you don't have a last name. You identify who's your father. And so Jonah, as a prophet, gets to come and say, Hi, my name's Jonah, son of Truth. See, that doesn't hurt, right, if you're a prophet. So he's got a really cool father's name, being a son of truth. Jonah's name itself is, is really interesting. His name, Yonah, say Yonah, that's the Hebrew word for dove. And that's worth mentioning. Boy, so many of the Bible names, so many of the people that God chooses just happen to have these names that it begins to be just way beyond the realm of coincidence. Uh, as is everything, in my opinion, when God is involved. There is no coincidence of the God that I read in the Bible. But God picks a man whose name is Dove. Why might that be worth mentioning? What might that add to our time in the book of Jonah? Well, one of the biblical, biblical metaphors for Israel herself is Dove. Psalm 68, Psalm 74, and in Hosea chapter 6, Seven, I see it on the screen. Israel is called dove. And so, to a Hebrew reader at least, when they first heard the story of Jonah and they heard that his name was dove, or they saw that his name was dove, instantly in their heads at least is, oh, that's God's name for us as a nation. And it's fascinating. I know many of you know the story of Jonah, and we'll dive in a little more to the text next week. But it's fascinating to think of that story as not just Jonah's story, not just about Jonah the dove, but about Israel herself as the dove. And it's an amazing window through which to look at the story of Jonah that Israel is being talked about there. And we'll talk more about that next week. What else do we know? Jonah is dove. Israel is dove. Oh, this is where it starts to 
really get fascinating, although maybe you're fascinated already, I am. Do you recall, do you recall what the animals were, the sacrificial animals that the poorest of the poor were required and allowed to make to the Lord? Do you remember what animals? Yes, doves were among them. The poor couldn't afford a cow or a goat or a ram or a sheep. Those things are expensive, and they're so poor. So God, in his great love and mercy for the poor, said, you know what? You can bring instead as your sacrifice either a pair of pigeons or a pair of doves. Or in Hebrew, the poor could sacrifice a Yonah, a Jonah, a dove. And you could find pigeons and doves. They're a dime a dozen. If you knew how, you could probably catch one. And probably easier to catch than mice in church offices, but you could catch one. <laughs> and you'd probably catch them for free. And P.S., we, uh, we haven't got there yet, but if you know the story of Jonah, at one point in the story, who's the one who sacrificed in an attempt to keep that storm from sinking the boat that Jonah was on? Who's the one thrown overboard to appease God and still the storm? Who sacrificed? A sacrificial, uh, a sacrificial dove, a Jonah. Isn't that interesting? And isn't that just, all of that, uh, interesting and even fascinating that God would choose as a prophet to the northern kingdom, God would choose as one of his generals in the war against idolatry, especially idolatry that results in the oppression of the poor, that God would choose a prophet whose father's name is Truth, whose own name also represents Israel, and whose name as well represents perhaps the poor who now maybe have a voice in Jonah the prophet. Isn't that fascinating? We, I, I can't even get off the guy's name yet. I mean, the Word of God is so amazing. You just keep peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling and there's more and there's more and there's more. Kind of like God himself. What else? Uh, think of the New Testament. I've given you a lesson before, a couple of years ago already, on the sign of Jonah. That's mentioned in the New Testament. I won't repeat that here. But um, by one count at least, there are as many as 18 possible references to the book of Jonah, the story of Jonah in the New Testament. 18. So we're going to take the time to go through each one no, we won't. You're like, oh, no, it's nice outside. Don't do that. <laughs> Some of them are, are obscure and, and uh, just possibilities, but as many as 18 possible references to this famous story. How about this one, just to try on size? What about, uh, try for size, what about Jesus' uh, baptism, right? We read that the Holy Spirit descends like a what? Why pick dove to represent the Holy Spirit? There are many possible answers, but seeing as the word dove is Yonah, does that dove somehow represent, or is it a tie to this story? And or uh, is it a tie to Israel being the dove? 
that dove descending on Jesus, equipping him fully now for his adult ministry. Is that a sign that, boy, that's the sign of Israel. He is indeed Israel's Messiah. And all of her hopes as a nation are now rest with him. Or is the dove a, um, a sign of Jonah? One of the signs, at least, of that dove. Jesus compares himself to Jonah in Luke chapter 11. And he says, you know what? Now someone even greater than Jonah even greater than the dove, uh, is here. Or is there uh, implications in Jesus' baptism of that dove being that sacrificial animal for the poorest of the poor? Of course it would be a dove coming and resting upon Jesus. Of course that would be the sign of the Holy Spirit because Jesus is indeed the sacrificial animal for all of us poorest of the poor. Isn't that fascinating? And all from the man's name. Amen? Okay, just seeing if you're there. How about this one from the New Testament? How about the Apostle Peter? Biblical scholars debate. Maybe you've run across this in your reading of the Gospels. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Peter's father's name is Jonah. The Gospel of John says Peter's father's name is John. What's up with that? Some possible explanations. Here's one. Do you suppose that Matthew grabs that name of Jonah symbolically to draw a parallel between Peter and Jonah? Or in other words, to say that in many respects at least, Peter is a son of Jonah. And why might that parable be there? Well, Peter, like Jonah was told to go and reach the Gentiles, non-Jews. And Peter, like Jonah, struggled greatly with that at first, didn't he? And Peter, like Jonah, had to have someone come and reprimand him before he turned the corner and was able to wholeheartedly, although I don't know if Jonah quite gets there, but until he was able to go to the Gentiles. Apostle Paul did that for Peter. And God for Jonah. Isn't that something? And part of Peter's wrestle include, is included in the same city, in Joppa. And Joppa happens to be the, the, the port city that Jonah gets on the boat to run from God. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, the Bible is so cool. We haven't even gotten off of his name. Isn't that amazing, the Word of God? Okay, now, I want to use what I think is a great opportunity uh, presented by Jonah, the book of Jonah in particular, to talk a little bit about biblical interpretation, um, or what uh, theologians call hermeneutics, how we go about interpreting Scripture. And, you know, this is where some of you may feel, okay, the sermon's going to start to get a little fishy. <laughs> that was from Gary Muse, so blame him. And some of you may walk out of here thinking, boy, that sermon, that was one whale of a story. <laughs> but uh, here's my joke, but I borrowed it from someone too. 
You know, as Rachel said to Leah, uh, please bear with me. <laughs> oh, that hit you a little late, didn't it? That's all right. <laughs> to introduce that topic of biblical interpretation, boy, you got it really late. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to ask you one of the questions that frequently gets asked when people are talking about the book of Jonah and that famous story. In fact, it's a question when I taught uh, both junior high and senior our kids in Bible, I got in every single class, dozens of classes whenever I would talk about Jonah. So this question's out there. Scholars ask the question. Lay people ask the question. Both Christian and non-Christians ask the question. I bet you can guess. What's, what, what's that common question maybe that sort of comes up whenever Jonah and his story comes up? What's that question? Yeah. Or maybe put it this way. Was Jonah really swallowed by a whale? Ooh. Melanie Dykes gave me that puzzle. Isn't that awesome? Was he really swallowed by? That's the question, right? And what do you think? Was he really? Well, the way I've worded this question, at least, uh, makes it really easy to answer because the Bible says a great fish swallowed Jonah. never uses the word whale. Not sure where that came from. And I'm told uh, by scientists that a whale is a mammal. It's not a fish, just like a dolphin. They're mammals. A whale is a mammal. I'm also told if you want to tell, if you want to be able to tell those fishy things in the sea, um, you can tell one quick way to tell, I'm told, and uh, people correct me if you know if I'm wrong after the service, but if the thing swims with a side-to-side tail motion, it's a fish. If the thing swims with a uh, tail up-and-down motion, it's a mammal. My goodness, what don't you learn in the church on Sunday mornings? Right? So there you know. you got a handy way to tell if it's a fish or a mammal. But the Bible says a great fish swallowed Jonah. It doesn't say a whale. So let's make the question a little harder, shall we? The harder question that really opens up our discussion of biblical interpretation is then this question. Was Jonah really swallowed by a great fish? Ooh. And now that's the question, isn't it? And our answer, your answer to that question, depends in large part how you interpret the Bible. Because one of the first things we need to ask when interpreting a passage is what type of passage is it? The rules of interpretation are different for different types of passages. Let me give you an example. What if the passage that we're interpreting is a parable? And for sure the passage is a parable, then we know when we read it that the parable itself is probably not historical in every detail at least, meaning the details of the parable Maybe they haven't actually happened in that precise way. You take, take Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. Everyone agrees it's a parable. So if I asked you, was there really a Good Samaritan? Or if I asked you, did the Good Samaritan 
you know, really help that guy that was mugged and laying in the ditch, I would guess everyone would say, well, no, not really. The story is a parable. It's meant to illustrate truth. It's not historical. It didn't really happen that way. But what if the story being told isn't a parable? What if, it's, what if the story being told is something called historical narrative, a type uh, that uh, appears all over uh, uh, in our Bibles? Well, our approach to interpretation changes, doesn't it? When we read historical narrative, we conclude, well, the author is intending to give us history intending to tell us what really happened in every detail. And that, that foundational rule of biblical interpretation, uh, I think, uh, isn't controversial. We all want to know, and everyone agrees, you've got to figure out what type of passage is it before you start interpreting it. Is it a parable? Is it historical narrative? Is it poetry? Is it apocalyptic literature? Is it a gospel? Is it a letter? And you want to decide because what we're really after is what's the author's intent in writing and telling that story? What did the author intend? Is the author intending to tell us history? What really happened? Or is the author only trying to illustrate truth? even if it really didn't happen that way in every detail. That brings us back, with respect to Jonah, to that question about the story of Jonah and the great fish. Was Jonah really swallowed by a great fish? And I'll suggest to you that your answer to that question depends on whether you conclude that the author of Jonah is intending to tell us a literal history? Or is the author of Jonah intending to illustrate truth? Maybe using pieces of history, but blowing it up a bit to make a bigger point, something like a parable. And then there's this possibility as well, you know, is the author blending both types? And that can be a tough study and wrestle, but... Your answer, was he really swallowed by a great fish, I'll bet, depends on whether you think the author is trying to tell you history or is giving you some sort of illustration that didn't necessarily happen in detail. And so the debate with the book of Jonah goes because there's enough about that book that feeds a scholarly and considered and reasonable conclusion as being, well, no, this is historical narrative. But there are other aspects of that book that feed a reasoned conclusion, and there are Christians on both sides, God-loving Christians who believe this is true, who say, no, this thing matches the test for a parable, and the debate goes back and forth. I'll give you a little taste of that debate, at least this morning. Is the book historical or is it more parabolic? Those who argue for its historicity point to the following things. Jonah was a real prophet, and he was. His name is mentioned in 2 Kings as a prophet during that time of Jeroboam II. And they say, those on the history side, that 
Um, the book of Jonah isn't introduced as a parable, and they're correct. The parabolic folks would say, well, sometimes real people, real names are used in parables. And they'll also say, not every parable is always introduced in the Bible by first saying this is a parable. Take, for example, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not introduced as a parable. We all accept it as such because it's obvious, Jesus. But it doesn't have to be introduced. Second, those history folks will say, well, many details of the book are historically accurate. And they're correct. There are place names, for example, that are um, uh, accurate. But parabolic possibility folks will say, take the parable of the Good Samaritan, Real road, real places are mentioned. There's a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've been on it. <laughs> so it doesn't necessarily make it historical. Three, they'll say, and this is a weighty one, a particularly weighty in my opinion. The reason they believe it's historical is it's been traditionally understood as being historically accurate by both Jew and Christian, and that's a powerful one. We ought to give weight to what uh, the greats in the faith before us thought, and they certainly did, uh, um, in large part at least. Eh, parabolic folks will say, well, you know, not every tradition um, has turned out to be the best or be true. Four, the history folks, um, this is one where a history folk gets nervous and and I share this nervousness too. You know, you folks that think it's a parable, you don't believe that God can do miracles. I believe God can do miracles just fine. He made the earth from nothing. That's quite a feat. He could certainly handle what happened to Jonah supernaturally. And that's true, in my opinion. But you have to be careful because not every person, every believer in the parable camp um, uh, uh, doesn't believe God can do miracles. That's not why they're leaning parable. It's passing some other tests in their minds. Fifth, Jesus references the story, and there's that three days in the fish that is one sign of Jonah that Jesus is three days in the grave. And that's a strong one too, but the parable folks will say, well, um, Jesus could be referencing the story and the truth there, whether or not it's literally true, still could be parabolic in nature. Then one last one. Um, Assyria, uh, during that time, hadn't yet risen to uh, power. In fact, it was in a weakened state, had suffered a series of natural disasters, an earthquake, um, an eclipse. You say, well, what did an eclipse do? Well, it really shook the ancients. It's on the list of natural disasters for an ancient, I guess. And that might perhaps explain why, uh, why Nineveh was so ripe uh, to repent, at least for a time. So those are some of the arguments for people say, you know what? This book of Jonah, I think the author intends history. Here's some uh, of what the parable folks note. They note uh, the lack of historical details usually associated with true historical narratives. And they're right. Uh, there's no other historical narrative that has this few 
but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a parable. Maybe it's a historical narrative that just has a few. You get a flavor for this debate yet? So if you find this fascinating, go to seminary. But I still think there's application for us here today, so, so bear with me. Second reason why uh, folks will lean parable is to say, man, there is hyperbole in their opinion, uh, this uh, outrageous exaggeration to make a point unlike any that you can find in historical narrative. I mean, um, even the cattle repent and are praising God. I, there's some exaggeration there, at least in the minds of those folks, and that sounds like a parable. Third, the parable folks will say, you know, that fish story and, and Jonah's singing a song while inside the fish, you know, that's just too hard to swallow. It's just... It's too improbable for them, and that one kind of butts up to, yeah, well, you know, you don't think God can do a miracle. And, yeah, we think God can do a miracle, but there's nothing this improbable, at least, in, in historical narrative that we find. And so maybe, you know, maybe it's the authors intending it more like a parable, at least, in every uh, detail. And last, and this kind of relates to the, the third one, um, uh, the technical word here is uh, the parable folks think uh, that they look at the book of Jonah and they recognize its didactic nature. Didactic means its teaching nature. It's almost written like a devotional. You can really tell how it's carefully put together. It's kind of like a, you know extended version of that daily bread devotional. It's trying to drive home uh, a main lesson or a main point like a parable. Uh, Jonah, unlike any other prophet, ends with a question mark, uh, like some parables do. And so it's acting like a parable in how it's written. And so, I, and that's it. There's no more on the list. But you get a flavor, at least, uh, of why, even among Christians, uh, there's a debate as to whether you know, Jonah is a historical narrative and, and or whether it's parable or, or, or some of each. So what of the question, right? Was Jonah really swallowed by a great fish? Is Jonah historical in that regard? Or is it parable in that regard? And the answer is, I have no blessed idea. <laughs> I don't even have a, a, an opinion on it. I kidded a friend last night who was emailing me late, asking me questions of theology, which I love to do with him. I said, okay, I got to know. It's late. I'm still trying to figure out whether Jonah's a parable. And you know what? I, I don't know. It does have characteristics of each. I'm not sure now. If you take one thing away from the fishy story this morning, I hope it's something like this. Whether Jonah is historical in nature in every detail 
or whether it is parabolic in every nature or in some respects, as far as what we're really after, the truth of that story in terms of it explaining God, telling us, well, as Timothy says, in terms of its equipping of us to do every good work, the truth there stands and comes out as clearly either way. And we're after that truth, ultimately. Not the history. The Bible is a book about God's truth. And sometimes, oftentimes, it's very historical because in every historical detail there's a truth God wants to raise. But sometimes the Bible doesn't care about historical accuracy. It's not its main focus. It wants to give us the truth. And we easily conclude that, I think, my brothers and sisters, with things like the Psalms. Well, that's poetry. Of course it's not literally true that um, um, the lover in the Song of Solomon's, uh, some of the imagery in there, it's, it's poetic imagery. And we don't take it because we know it's poetry. And I'm suggesting at least that Jonah may have some of that same characteristic where it could be. But whether or not it is, the Bible is true. Amen? Okay. Joey likes it. Thanks, Joey. I appreciate that. He said, yeah, okay. So I'm good to go with Joey. So, was Jonah really swallowed by a great fish? You know what? I'll debate that with you. Uh, it gets us into God's Word, which um, uh, is always a good thing when we wrestle together in God's Word. But um, where I might come out eventually is to suggest perhaps that's the wrong question. Or it's a good question, but maybe it's not the best question. Maybe a better question to ask is this. What truth can we learn from the story of Jonah? What's God's truth there? Because that's what we really care about. What does it say to us? Whether it's historical or illustrative or parts of both. What's the truth there? Man, the profound and beautiful truth of this amazing book, it never ceases to amaze me. It's worth learning the Hebrew language for the sole purpose of reading Jonah in the original Hebrew. The Hebrew wordplay in here, double entendre, it's so clever. It, I'll give you a taste, and this is a little bit more like a classic sermon. I'll leave you uh, with a little devo, and then um, we're going to close in a song. Your assignment this week is please set aside some time to read through the book of Jonah. Can you do that? Four chapters. It's a 10-minute quick read. It's a 20-minute careful read. Would you read through the book of Jonah so we can dive right in next week? Some of you will do this, yes? All right, read through Jonah. When you get to chapter 4, this um, daily bread lesson, in the original Hebrew, 
Chapter 4 opens with Jonah saying 39 Hebrew words. God responds with three words. Jonah's next with three words. God is next with five words. Jonah's next with five words. And God ends it with 39 words. Whether this thing is historical, narrative, and or parabolic, it is carefully written. 39, 3, 3, 5, 5, 39. What to make of that? 39 to a Hebrew understanding is close enough and they hear 40. A time of testing. Jonah rails at God. 30, he's not happy. We'll see. Is he testing God, wrestling with God with 39 words? God responds with three words, the number of complete and whole, and I've got the whole answer. Jonah, coming in line perhaps, goes, hmm, I'll use three, Lord. God then responds with five words, the number of Torah, standing for obedience to the Hebrew mind. Jonah coming in line. Ah, I'll use five words, God. You're right, I need to obey. And then God with 40, asking the question, not just to Jonah, but to you and me. Testing, putting out there, will you pass the test of the message of this book? 40 words with a question mark, unanswered rhetorical question for you and I and Jonah to answer. Isn't that cool? Simpler message from that same story might be something like this. You know, when we're upset, we might just be tempted, and God can take it that we just rail at God. We tell God this and that, and that's how it goes. And maybe during those times, we ought to remember as well, maybe we just better sit still and be quiet and listen to what God has to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. While the musicians come forward, Father in heaven, thank you for one of the most amazing pieces of literature ever written in the book of Jonah. Father, if I've said anything today that causes someone to doubt the truth and reliability and authority of your word, Father, please forgive me and put it on their hearts to seek me out so I can verify and affirm that I would indeed give my life for the truth of your word. Father, help us in, in understanding and engaging in the beauty of wrestling with things like this as we desperately seek to know you better and to know you more and Bind us together in a unified diversity, Father, that doesn't pull apart because of disagreements on these sorts of things, but in fact 
pull us together and pull us together down on our knees humbly before you seeking such answers. And Father, we trust that one way or the other, because of us, despite of us, despite us, you will, through the power of your Holy Spirit, give us your truth and equip us that we might pursue and follow hard after you no matter what. Create in us, Father, that passion. In Jesus' name, amen. and could face uh, the center here, please. Not just to face me, but to face uh, your fellow We Are West Bulls family. Paul says this of Scripture, 
of the text in a letter to 2 Timothy, largely regarded as his last will and testament. And he reminds Timothy and he reminds us, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And he goes on and he tells us why. Why all the teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training. So that, Paul says, all God's people may be equipped for every good work. We're being equipped for good works and need to do them, did you know? In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next week.